Uh, we are continuing with our Credo series that we began last week. If you weren't here last week, um, I would really want to encourage you to uh, go onto the website, EmmausRoad.com, and to listen to Pete's uh, introduction to the series. Um, he explains a little bit about the, uh, uh, the Nicene Creed, and he talks about uh, Weebly, uh, we, he talks about God the Father. And um, I would really want to encourage a brilliant, brilliant talk. It's really, really worth listening to. It is my pleasure to introduce, uh, not that she needs any introduction at all, um, Hannah Heather uh, to you. Hannah is a part of the 24-7 prayer uh, team. She looks after the vision course, and she does lots of stuff with students. Her and her husband, Adam, also lead the uh, evening uh, service that we have that meets at St. Mary's. Uh, she is a phenomenal communicator, and we are really excited to, watch she, uh, to hear what she's going to say to us this morning. So let's welcome Hannah. Well, good morning. It's really lovely to be here with you all this morning, because we're always there in the evening. There's a lot of people that we don't get to see that much anymore, so it's really nice to see all your lovely faces. Um, as Bill says, today we're continuing with our Credo series. Um, and for those of you who weren't here last week, the Nicene Creed is our statement of faith as a church. It is what we believe, it is who we are. And so this series that we're on for the next few weeks is a series exploring kind of the core facets of our Christian belief and our Christian hope, all the things that we believe to be true. Um, and as Bill said, do listen to Pete's talk um, if you get a chance, if you haven't already heard it, because he goes through all the reasons why we use the Nicene Creed, all the stuff about the history of it. And if you're into that kind of thing, his talk is fabulous. If you're not, it's probably worth listening to as well. Um, it's just generally quite good. Um, but the reason why we're doing this series is we want to go through the core things we believe to be true. We want to look at why we think that they're true. But we also want to look at why does that matter for us, right? How does that affect our lives? What difference does that make on a Monday morning or a Friday night? What impact do these little sound bites of truth actually have on our lives? And last week was we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And this week we're moving on to the next stanza, which should come up behind me, which says this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. So as you can see, I got quite a large chunk of the creed this morning to talk about. And I mean, are there 12 sermons in that little chunk? I think there probably are. Um, but I'll spare you that and really try and do a whistle-stop tour of what this, um, this part of the creed talks about. And, and this is the part of the creed when really we begin to unpack the, the massive task of looking at the person of Jesus, who he was and what that means for us. And I'm going to do a real whistle-stop tour this morning and look at his divinity and then look at his lordship and what that means for us. So Jesus of Nazareth, he was and is the center point of history. 
How many of you know the author H.G. Wells? He's the guy who wrote War of the Worlds, who, incidentally, little factoid, is from Woking, and wrote that in Woking. <laughs> Does everybody know this fact? Everyone's nodding. In the first service, everyone's like, yes, yes, of course he was. I thought that was an interesting fact that I discovered. Um, H.G. Wells, who was an atheist in Woking, said this, I am a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Jesus, Jesus changed the course of history because he was a man that claimed to be God. In 1 John 1, it says this, referring to Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And as John is writing these words, and the other writers of the Gospels kind of sit down to write this crazy, scandalous truth that a man was really God. You can almost imagine their hands like shaking as they try and write this. This is wild. It is like earth-shattering, this truth, that God has walked on this earth, that God has a face, and they were able to look at it. It was scandalous and mind-blowing that the God of all the universe would reveal his, himself in such like an unmagnificent way as a man. He walked among us. Through him, all things were made, the Bible says, and the creed says, all things. So planets and galaxies, the way that your fingernails grow, the fact that, you know, it was snowing a little bit this morning, the fact that every Every bit of snow is, is different, is unique. He created all of that. All of that was created in him and through him. He is God. And this idea that Jesus the man was really God was so scandalous and so kind of hard to, to get people's heads around that there were some people that really struggled with it. And in particular, there was a guy called Arius. And he, he made the argument that Jesus, he was definitely a really good guy. He was, must have been like definitely a prophet, at least. And he, he definitely had some kind of powers. He was able to heal people and do stuff. He definitely had powers. Maybe he was even really like God. He was, he was probably the best man to ever live. Maybe some kind of superhuman, but he wasn't actually God. So he was close to, as close to God as was possible to be, but still was actually a man. But of course, the problem with this argument that Arius was making is that it actually goes against everything that Jesus said about himself and the whole witness of the Bible about him. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you have seen God. He is the perfect revelation of God because he is fully divine. And so Arius got defeated in this argument, and then we get this epic line in the, in the creed. We believe Jesus is true God from true God. Do you feel the weight of those words? He is truly God, of one being with the Father. The word they use here is homoousios, which means of the same substance as the Father. He is divine. There's this incredible story that's kind of gone down in history, and 
I'm not sure if it's true, but I kind of really, really want it to be true because it makes the whole creed stuff a little bit more funny. And the story goes that these guys, these bishops and philosophers, they're all kind of in these councils and debating and, and trying to work out who Jesus really was and, and what's true and what's not. And Arius is there, like, finding his corner, arguing the fact that Jesus wasn't really God. And, um, and St. Nicholas is there, as in Santa Claus, <laughs> the one we get Santa Claus from. And the story goes that St. Nicholas is sitting in the corner, and he's getting so angry at Arius for saying that Jesus wasn't God that at one point he just gets up, races across the room, and punches him square in the face, <laughs> which is like theology that's a little bit funny because it's Santa Claus <laughs> punching um, Arius. So if you don't remember anything else from today, remember that, um, that Arius was wrong and he got punched in the face by Santa. And so these, these writers of the Gospels and the Creed, they're trying to express to us just how God this man is. He is begotten, he's created, he's light of light, true God. But then you've got this other problem of if he's so God, then he can't possibly be that man right? Because God can't get tired at the end of the day. He can't, you know, find it hard to wake up on a Monday morning. He can't sort of get indigestion after he eats spicy food. He can't be that man. But again, the Gospels and the Creed, they, they kind of cry to us, he is really a man. The, the Bible talks about Jesus getting hungry and asking for something to eat. It talks about him crying. It talks about when he gets cut, he bleeds. He's really a man. And so the kind of end of the Gospels and the Creed, we have this glorious, scandalous truth that Jesus is really God and really man. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now that word Lord at the start of this part of the Creed, it's it's kind of sometimes one that I think is quite easy for us to skip over, isn't it? Because I think sometimes we kind of interchange all the titles and the names for God, don't we? And Lord can just kind of get mixed up as like a part of his name. But what does it actually mean to believe in one Lord Jesus Christ? What does this Lordship of Christ actually look like? Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word Lord is a funny one for us, I think, culturally, isn't it? Like, I don't think we really think about lords these days, because we kind of got lords and ladies. It's maybe almost like, it's like a kind of a, I don't know, like a pompous title that doesn't really mean anything. But, but culturally, as this word is being penned in the creed, and as the disciples were using this word and going around Jerusalem and, and expressing that Jesus is Lord, this word is radical. It's really political. And um, the word Lord is the Greek translation of Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's a way of referring to God. And so the writers of the Bible declared the lordship of Jesus, and they did so in this very tense political climate. At the time when they were writing this, they did so, and Caesar would call himself Lord at the time. And so to write Jesus is Lord was, a, was an intentional statement of dissent against Caesar. Jesus is the only true Lord. The root meaning of Lord is ruler. And so for the Christians to be declaring this was really inflammatory, a really controversial thing to say. 
Jesus is Lord is not some inane theological doctrine that we subscribe to as a church. It is not abstract. It's not obvious. It is wildly radical. A truth that people actually died to defend. A few months ago, a bunch of us um, traveled over to Vienna for the Global 24-7 Prayer Conference. I know a few of you here um, were there with us. And for some crazy reason, um, the Archbishop of Vienna, Cardinal Schoenborn, invited the like wild and crazy 24-7 prayer movement to hang out and to worship and pray in his private palace, um, which is like right next to St. Stephen's Cathedral in the middle of Vienna. Um, and so we're all in there, and there's this gorgeous piece of art that hangs up on the wall in the bishop's palace. You can see it there behind me a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we stood beneath that in Vienna in October, they, um, they told us the background to this painting. In, um, in October 1938, political tension was at an all-time high in Vienna. The Nazis were moving in, and the, the cardinal at the time, the archbishop, was being forced to, um, to declare his allegiance. So everybody in the streets was asking him to make a statement. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to say about this? And eventually the cardinal stands up before everybody and declares, there is only one Fuhrer, Jesus Christ. The next day, in response to this statement, the, uh, the Hitler youth um, stormed the bishop's palace and they repeatedly stabbed this portrait of the crucifixion. And the, the bishop's palace intentionally have never repaired the painting as a reminder of the importance of that statement. There is only one Fuhrer, there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. So what does this actually mean for us? If it's not just some title, if it's really a world-changing statement? Well, I wonder of us, I wonder how many of us came to faith in this God-man who came to save us. And we, you know, we accept his forgiveness and we enjoy having him as a feature of our lives. We maybe enjoy coming along to church on a Sunday. He's like a pleasant addition to our lives. But this statement of lordship is something altogether different to that. To declare the lordship of Jesus over our lives means to actually say, I am no longer in control. Jesus is. I am no longer in control of my own life, my decisions, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, my private life. I'm no longer in control. I'm giving all of myself to Jesus. The lordship of Jesus is confrontational, commands our obedience. And when Jesus is actually the Lord of our lives, what that does is it changes and alters our whole identity. N.T. Wright, who's a theologian up in Scotland, says this, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. See, here's the thing. Allegiance or lordship and identity are actually ultimately the same thing. Because whatever is the number one allegiance or commitment of your life, is your identity. Do you know that Mumford and Sons uh, line where you invest your love, you invest your life? So what are you invested in? What are you really building your life on? 
I'm um, profoundly challenged by this quote I came across this week, and it made me realize how easy it, it actually is for other things to slip in and kind of take the place of leadership, of lordship in our lives. So I'm going to read it to you. Whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. So what controls you? So I think the thing that we have to realize is that actually we're not really in control of ourselves. See, I think the myth is that the areas that that we don't surrender to Jesus, we think that we are Lord of those, that we're in control, but it's actually a lie. And the reality is that it's always something else that's in the driver's seat. It might be fear of what people will think. It might be a desire to be wealthier. It might be a, a need to be loved or a craving to be more powerful. These are all like little lords that take the driving seat where Jesus belongs. And the problem, of course, is that those things can never lead you to a place better than the place that he will lead you to. If fear is in the driver's seat, then you can never end up in a place of peace and freedom. But in contrast, Jesus' lordship sets us free. And this is such good news. Relinquishing this masquerade of control to Jesus finally sets us free of ourselves. That means that you no longer have to lean on your own strength, your own courage, your own intelligence, your own leadership skills to make you a great husband, a great mother, a great boss, a great friend. It is a surrendered life that submits to the lordship of one who is far greater than you. Back to the Becca Pipper quote, Jesus' ownership of our lives is not a control that manipulates us or takes away our dignity. He governs our lives by being who he is without compromise and by insisting we become all that we are meant to be. God created us for himself. If we live with any center other than Jesus, we will be living incompletely. So how can you know what your little lords are? I think there's a really easy little test for that. To know what your lords really are, you need to learn to pay attention to your ifs. Okay, so if you find yourself hearing the words of Jesus and saying, if it doesn't offend my modern sensibilities or the culture that I live in, then I'll obey God. If it doesn't cost me my leisure time, if it doesn't really cost me my reputation, if there's no risk or ridicule involved, if it doesn't really cost me any money, if it doesn't cost me this relationship that I really want, then I will obey. But where there's any if in our obedience, if you look on the other side of that if, you will find out what's really in control. You'll find out the thing that is really driving you. And saying Jesus is Lord does not simply mean that, that this allegiance to Jesus is like the most important aspect of your life. You know, like I'm going to prioritize my quiet times. Absolutely, because Jesus is Lord. 
It means more than that. It means how can we make him Lord in every area of our lives? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in your work? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of your home life, your leisure time? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord in the way that you parent your children? Has his love kind of freed you up from the, the little idols and the little lords that lurk in all those different areas? The thing is, Jesus is so much more powerful and he's so much more beautiful and life-giving and liberating than any of the things that, that hold us and control us. He's not an addition to our lives, to our week. He is Lord. As long as we conclude that Jesus is simply here to improve portions of our life rather than give us an entirely new life, we will fail to understand who he really is. Now, I want to hit you with a little science, which I'm told is true. I'm not at all scientific, so if it's wrong, forgive me. But um, imagine the distance from the Earth to the sun. This is apparently 92 million miles. Imagine that distance was the thickness of one ordinary sheet of paper. Okay, and then imagine the distance from the Earth to the nearest star would then be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The diameter of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Holy moly, right? I have absolutely no spatial awareness, but I am aware that is flipping huge, right? And our galaxy is only a single speck, one of an infinite number of galaxies, even just in the part of the universe that we can see. I think that is absolutely mind-blowing. I have no concept of even beginning to imagine the vastness of that. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made. The Bible says Jesus Christ holds all creation together with a word of his power. Is that the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your secretary? Or your assistant? Or even some kind of consultant? He will either be the absolute Lord of your life or he can be nothing at all. There is no in-between. So how can you make Jesus Lord of your life in a more practical and a deeper way? There's four questions that we're going to quickly run through that we can use to prompt us to look at all the different areas of our life and evaluate where he is Lord. So firstly, we look at obedience that is complying with God's commands in his word. And the question here is, am I willing to obey whatever God says about this, no matter how I feel about it? And I think this is profoundly challenging for us because the culture that we live in is one of, look first at yourself, like, is this, does this feel good to you? Does this feel right to you? Then do that. But what the Bible says is that if Jesus is Lord, then we cannot, be, we cannot look to our own moral conscience, our own moral compass to be our guidance. We have to look at God's word to us and be obedient to that. And, you know, I think this happens a lot in church, maybe even in our own congregation in discipleship context where, you know, we need to call someone out on an area where they're living in a way that isn't in line with God's word. 
And so often the response to that kind of challenge is, oh, but Jesus is love. I know that's always my response when I get called out on my selfishness or sin, whatever it might be, but Jesus is love. And of course, Jesus is love. He is the very definition of love. Jesus is love and Jesus is Lord. And the thing is, is that if there's an area of my life where I'm not obeying what he says, I don't know the fullness of what it means to be alive because he came to give me life in all its fullness. And so if he says I can't live in a certain way or do a certain thing, I can be sure that it is because I will be more alive. I will be more free without it. So are there areas in your life where, if you're honest, you're not willing to obey God? Secondly, the submission question. Are we really surrendered to, the God, to God's will, to the plan that God has for our lives? And the way that we check our heart on this one is we ask ourselves this question. Am I giving thanks to God in all circumstances, trusting his plan for my life? This is a hard one, but relating to Jesus as Lord kind of brings about this trust in our hearts that even if I don't understand it now, he is Lord and he will make this work together for my good. Romans 8, 28, he will make it work for my good. My husband, Adam, um, applied for a job about three and a half years ago and um, he really wanted this job. Like, desperately wanted this job, like had no idea what he was going to do with his life if he didn't get it. And so he prepared and prepared and, you know, fasting and praying and doing the whole thing. And he went through the interview process and felt like it went really well. He was really hopeful. And he got called into the room and they said, look, we're really sorry, but we've actually decided to give the job to someone else. And so Adam got in his car and he was driving home just totally totally broken by this, totally confused and sad and like, God, why would, why would this have happened? Why not me? Why not not? And he was praying and he felt very clearly a prompt from God to, to actually pray for the person who had been offered the job. <laughs> That's like the last thing you want to do in that moment, isn't it? That's the last thing you want to do. But he did. He prayed and he gave the whole thing back over to Jesus. You know, I think those are the moments when we really discover who is the Lord of our lives. Is it our own ambition? Is it our own happiness? Or is it really Jesus? So he gave thanks for Jesus' lordship and submitted to his plans. And, you know, I like to think that things turned out pretty well in the end, because it was actually me that, <laughs> that got that job, and so I moved to Guildford, and, and then we got married. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out pretty well in the end. And, um, and Adam actually said in his, in his wedding speech, it's amazing how God turned one of my biggest disappointments into the best thing that has happened to me. And I know, cute. Um, <laughs> And I can't say that every time you face a disappointment or you don't get a job, it's because God is secretly busy hiring, you know, your future spouse. I can't promise that, but I can say that Jesus is a trustworthy king. Romans 8, 28, he works all things out for the good of those who love him. Jesus is Lord. And what that means is that my life is not random. 
I am surrendered to a God who has plans for me. And so we need to learn to trust him. Thirdly, reliance. Is there anything that I'm relying on more than God to give me hope and meaning in life? Am I relying more on money for the security of my family than Jesus? This is really the idolatry question. See, we can say that Jesus is Lord and that we're building our lives on him when in actual fact our real driving force, our real hope when you really drill it down is actually maybe our career or our relationship or our leisure time. But you're not really treating Jesus as Lord if something else has become your functional beauty or your functional hope. Fourthly and finally, expectance. Expectance? I'm very expectant for this slide to appear. Thank you. You guys are amazing. Expectance. If God is king, he will not call you into something without supporting you and backing you, right? If he holds the whole world together by the power of his word, he is in every way equipped to strengthen, support, and give you all you need every day. And so the question here that we have is, are there problems or limitations in my life that I think are just too big for God to remove? Am I saying Jesus is Lord, but really holding some things back, holding some things in my own hands? Because if I'm honest, I don't really think there's anything he'll be able to do about them. So what we do is we think through the different areas in our lives. We think through our home life, our work life, our relationships, and we think, we ask ourselves those questions. Am I willing to obey Jesus, no matter how I feel about it? Am I willing to thank him even when I don't understand or I'm confused? Is there something that, if I'm really honest, deep down, I'm relying on it more than God for my life's meaning? And finally, are there any problems or limitations that I think are just too big for God, so I'm holding on to them instead? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, really God, really man, creator of everything, and the one who knows your name and what you had for your breakfast this morning. And this Lord Jesus is wholly, utterly, all-consumingly committed to you, so much so that he died to set you completely free, that you might live life to the full inside his kingdom. And when we trust him as Lord and give him all of ourselves, we will find ourselves freer and living lives more beautiful and remarkable than we could ever have imagined. I'm going to finish with a story um, from Elizabeth Elliot, who's one of my personal heroes. And Elizabeth tells this story of a beggar at the side of the road. And he's got the drab clothes and the, the dirt on his cheeks and he's standing at the side of the road and he has like a little cup that he's holding out to ask people for money and inside of his cup he has 20 maybe 30 little bronze coins in it and one day he's standing at the side of the road and a, a king rides up with all his chariots rides up and stops beside the beggar and the king gets down from his chariot and he says to him please may I have everything that's in your cup and the beggar's like, what? No, I don't want to give him. This is all that I have. But he's like, oh, but he's a king, so I probably have to do something. So he reaches into his cup, and he pulls out two of his bronze coins. 
and he hands them to the king. And the king says, thank you, and hands back two sparkling diamonds and then rides away. And the beggar's like, what? Why didn't I give him more? Why didn't I give him everything in my cup? And this is so us with Jesus. This is so what we do. He comes to us and he says, please give me all that you have. And when we do, when we give him our dusty, dirty little bronze coins, he will turn them into something more beautiful than we could ever imagine. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you're Lord. I thank you that that means that I don't have to be Lord of my own life. I thank you that that means that I get to surrender to a plan that is only for my good. Thank you that I get to live life to the fullness when I give every area of my life to you. Help me to not hold on. Help me to give it all to you. Amen.